Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall and this is my co-host Bruce Weiner with me this morning. Good morning, Bruce. How are you? Morning, Rachel. Uh, once again, I'm I'm really happy that we can share Dr. Wade with our listeners because he is uh, thought of throughout the both the investment and the insurance industry as one of not only the um, the most uh, respected people in the United States, but uh, throughout uh, throughout the world. So uh, we're really really grateful, Doctor, that you came on today to share your knowledge with our listeners. Oh, well, thanks. Excellent. And thank you so much, Dr. Wade Fow, for joining us today. I'm going to just give a brief introduction to the episode, and then we will kick us off into the show. So if you are looking to get the most income later in life, this is an episode that you want to listen into. We will be taking questions during the podcast as well. If you have questions that you feel that you'd like to have answered live on this episode, Now, if you are thinking about how do I arrange my financial life, I want you to know that your success depends not just on one product, but really having a a coordination of all of your financial tools in your entire financial system. And whether you want to achieve time and money freedom and you're building that through cash flowing assets like real estate and business, or whether you're building a a investment portfolio and you want to figure out how to have the most incomes, the greatest income stream from that later in life, you really want to hear about how the typical approach does not work and how whole life insurance is something that helps you synchronize all of your financial assets together to improve your legacy, to improve your future income during retirement and really be able to have greater options. So today we're talking with Dr. Wade Fow, widely recognized expert on retirement income strategies with whole life insurance. So if you want the most income during retirement, you want the greatest chance of not running out of money, you want to be able to leave a legacy to your children and understand the trade-off between having a higher premium going towards whole life insurance and wondering if that makes sense when term is so much cheaper. Let's talk today about why all of these things matter. So a little bit more about Dr. Wade before we jump in. So Dr. Wade Fow is a PhD, CFA, and RICP. He's the Curriculum Director of the Retirement Income Certified Professional Designation, and he's a Professor of Retirement Income at the American College of Financial Services in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. As well, he's a Principal and Director for McLean Asset Management. He holds a Doctorate in Economics from Princeton University and publishes frequently in a wide variety of academic and practitioner research journals on topics like retirement income. He hosts the Retirement Researcher website, which you're going to hear a little bit more about today as well. And he's a contributor to large publications like Forbes, Advisor Perspective, Journal of Financial Planning, and he's an expert panelist for the Wall Street Journal. He also is the author of several books and a white paper that we will be discussing today. We'll have the links for all of that in the show notes. So Dr. Wade, thank you officially for joining us for the show today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came into this interesting world of working with finance and specifically life insurance? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, it was a little bit of a a roundabout path. So I, I was in traditional economics and I had done my dissertation about social security reform. And in the early 2000s, there was this idea of privatizing social security. So I looked at that. I then I moved to Japan. I was a professor of economics in Tokyo, working on the pension systems of developing countries, wanting to move back to the U.S. and recognizing that this was not really a marketable topic for (laughs) finding positions in the U.S., And then I I stumbled into retirement income planning because it's still a relatively new field. The idea of how do you plan for retirement income? So my background is investments. And I started to learn about how the investment world approaches retirement income planning. So it's things like the 4% rule of thumb and so forth, that you basically manage your longevity risk and your market risk by assuming worst case scenarios. And then you spend less to try to not run out of money, but you still never know if that's going to work because you don't know if you're going to have a new worst case scenario in the future. So Mm -hmm. that, that wasn't necessarily the most fulfilling way to approach retirement. So in looking for alternatives, first really coming to understand the value of an annuity and and risk pooling and insurance so that you don't have to plan for the worst case scenario. You have this risk pool where you can plan for more of an average outcome. And so after coming to understand the value of annuities, then people are starting to point out to me, well, well, if you like annuities now, why don't you have a look at life insurance and in particular whole life insurance and how that can be integrated with the investments and with the annuities as well to build an even better approach towards retirement income. And so then I started to do some simulations about that and comparing the, the as you mentioned, like buy term and invested difference is what the investment world believes. You put as little into life insurance as possible and comparing that sort of approach towards people who are thinking ahead for retirement, well, what if I think about permanent life insurance and how mm-hmm. might that fit into my retirement income plan? And finding the potential that with life insurance, permanent life insurance, you can help lay the foundation for better retirement outcomes, more spending and or more legacy in retirement. And so that's the basic story of how I got there with it. <laughs> so, so, Dr. Wade, I think it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that you were v- really um, in the investing world first. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you actually transitioned into, I would say, the insurance world, although, although you, you actually teach at the college. Um, but because a lot of times when I bring up your your um, your white paper to people, they say, well, of course, he's going to come to that conclusion because, you know, he's in the insurance world. And I say, well, you know, good research isn't about finding what you want to find out. It's about finding out what the truth is. So with that, a little um, introduction, can you tell us a little bit about the truth of what you you have found as far as income planning? Mm-hmm. Right. And so it is, at the end of the day, there's really these two different approaches towards retirement income. And so with my background, where I come from with investments, the idea is if you invest in an aggressive portfolio, so this 4% rule that I mentioned, it's kind of the starting point in the investments world for how to think about retirement. And it suggests holding 75% stocks throughout retirement, and in no circumstances, less than 50% stocks. Because with bonds, you just can't afford a very high level of spending in retirement. So there's this belief that stocks will outperform bonds. And historically, this does tend to happen. And so 
the way you spend more is by having a high stock allocation and, and keeping your fingers crossed that in the pivotal early years of retirement, when it matters the most, you get good returns in the, the markets. And then that can, can, if you get reasonable stock market returns, that can work, <laughs> that can fund your retirement. But the other approach, I call it safety first retirement planning, where you don't necessarily make your entire retirement lifestyle dependent upon getting good returns from the stock market, that you can pool that risk. And so different types of annuities, but starting with the simple income annuity, you have this risk pool. Those who don't live as long end up subsidizing those who live longer. And of course, that benefits those who live longer, but, but it really benefits everyone because now everyone can spend at a higher level. If I'm worried I'm going to outlive my assets, and a lot of people worry about this, and I don't have any insurance, then I just have to spend less. And if I have the insurance, I can spend more because I know I have this contractual protection that if I live longer than average... I don't have to have the stock market outperform to fund that. I have this contractual protection to fund that. And, and so that can support a higher level of spending. And that it's called these mortality credits. It's this power of the annuity. That's really competitive with the stock market. It's difficult for stocks to outperform by enough to match what the, the power of the annuity can do. And so then with life insurance, one basic way to, to think about the life insurance as part of that is well, people aren't always comfortable buying annuities. They're worried, you know, they might purchase the annuity and then not live very long. <laughs> In hindsight, that wouldn't have worked out the best for them. But they can think about the life insurance as a replacement for that asset. So if I have a million dollars of death benefit, just for example, with life insurance, I could feel more comfortable purchasing a million dollars worth of an annuity. And, and then not only that, but I can get the most spending power out of that annuity. I don't have to worry about making it joint life. I don't have to worry about having cash refunds on it and so forth, because I have the life insurance to replace that asset. And that's called the, the covered asset strategy. And so I, I simulate that sort of approach. If I'm a 40-year-old thinking ahead to retirement and I need life insurance to protect my family, do I buy term and invest a difference? Or do I start purchasing life insurance? And then I compare that strategy. Or maybe you just you buy term and invest a difference and then you buy a joint life annuity at retirement. Versus you have whole life insurance. You buy a single life annuity at retirement. And finding that that approach can support more spending and more legacy than just using term insurance before retirement and then relying solely on the investment portfolio for retirement. So you that, know, that's really one of the angles. <laughs> Dr. Wade, the first time I heard you speak, um, I actually asked you this question then, and you gave me a great response. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this point up again for our listeners. I said, the first thing that came to my mind is, well, Dr. Wade, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you have thought of this, but people say all the time to us, but if I'm taking the money out of my, what I would be investing in my investments and putting it into whole life, then I have mm -hmm. less money to actually build in my investments, how can that possibly make sense then? So can you give a conceptual response to that? Mm -hmm. And that, that's an important point because sometimes you'll see more simplified versions of this sort of analysis where they magically introduce a new life insurance policy at retirement. Of course, because whole life insurance has higher premiums, you'll have less, if you're putting more into the life insurance, you'll have less to put into your investments. 
And so therefore you should expect a lower investment account balance at retirement. And so when I do the research about this, I incorporate that into the analysis. I do have you getting to the retirement date with less investment assets. But it, then we have to look at how it all gets put together with the less investment assets, but with the life insurance. Can you get a better outcome? And that's where in doing these simulations, I find the trade-offs are okay. The, the life insurance can then work with its risk pooling and whether we talked about with the annuity, but then there's another way to think about it as well we can discuss. But you, you can jointly get a, a better outcome that sort of way, even with the lower account balance in your investments at retirement. You know, I think one thing that I just tremendously appreciate as I read your white paper is that you do not make any assumptions that people will accept your viewpoint without substantiation. And I love that you work through very systematically exactly what that simulation looks like and what it means. And you don't assume that anyone will understand why you have the numbers that you have without explaining all of it. And I, I really appreciate that full disclosure process. It can almost feel very academic and it can feel maybe like you're reading something that's not very exciting to read, but it also <laughs> feels very confirming, if that makes sense. It feels like I can not only read and understand what I'm reading, but I can trust it because the numbers are backed up and, and it makes sense. You didn't just come up with numbers out of thin air. And so on a podcast, it's not a place where we can necessarily talk through all of those scenarios, but I really just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate that simulation and thinking through all of the factors that would contribute even to the detail that you just said. You cannot assume that you just added a life insurance policy on magically without paying the premium, which would then cause your investment account balance to be less because you had less contributions to put into that investment account. So you really did think through all of the elements that are impacting these scenarios and work them out in a very systematic fashion. And I think that that is one of the beautiful pieces of what you present in the white paper. So well, thanks. Let me, let me just say that is sort of the, the academic approach. I, I do see a lot of company white papers where it is a black box and you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. But when you write academic articles, you're supposed to explain your methodology and approach so that somebody else could re recreate the analysis that you've explained fully what you've done. Now, not everyone may be able to sit down because it can involve programming and things, but, but mm -hmm. at least the step-by-step -step instructions should be there. So if somebody wanted to challenge the results, they could recreate what you've done and then also know what assumptions you've made. And then if they believe the assumptions should be different, should be able to then modify and see what sort of impact that would have. But yeah, any sort of academic work, it should be replicable. Someone else should be able to read the article and recreate the analysis on their own. And in doing so, that means they can't be forced to guess what you're assuming. You have to right. state all of that in the article. Which I think gives a lot of credibility. And it also helps somebody to who somebody who wants to pursue the level of detail that you've outlaid in the article. It really helps them to fully think through and not have to trust the professionals or trust someone who's smarter than them, but really be able to wrap their arms around why would I want to use whole life insurance. And so 
what I want to do today, I also want to ask you just directly, because I think this is probably a question that would be on listeners' minds. Do you personally sell life insurance? No, no. I mean, I'm <laughs> so the, the financial advisory firm I work with, it's considered a fee only firm. So we do, we're not able to sell any sort of insurance products on our own. We're, we have to send that business out elsewhere when yeah, if you we make recommend, like, Yeah, just to make, make sure everybody understands, you make recommendations that people have this, mm-hmm. but, then, but then your firm's not getting any monetary um, uh, payment for this. Right. Because it's fee only. Um, I think people get confused on that quite a bit. So the recommendations you are making are not based upon you getting compens- compensated for that particular product. It's for the strategy. Right. Yeah. So I think that's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point. So, Doc, also, let's talk a little bit about bonds, because I think bonds are a really important part of this, not only for past planning or tr- our typical uh, planning, but also the understanding of, of uh, fixed income, which would be the annuity and the whole life. So could you um, conceptually talk about the role that bonds play? Because when I talk to people about this and we talk about bonds, uh, the low yield of bonds, and then they find out that whole life insurance is actually based upon bonds, they're like, now that, that doesn't make any sense to me, you know, um, and I go about explaining it one way, but I'd love to, without uh, biasing you on the explanation, I'd love to hear your explanation of how the actuarial bonds fit into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with bonds, I mean, first of all, we can think about where are you holding those bonds? Is it in a retirement, like tax advantaged account, or is it in a taxable account? And especially in a taxable account, bonds, you have to pay taxes on the interest every year. Uh, One of the advantages of life insurance, and this is an important part of in these simulations why life insurance can really help, is you have the the tax advantages. You have tax deferral. You don't have to pay ongoing taxes every year on the interest. And then as well, with the, the policy being properly structured, you can take out the distributions without having to pay taxes. So you've got the tax advantages, but at the end of the day, the life insurance, whole life insurance, it's primarily held in a bond portfolio. So then we can further look at, well, what kind of bonds can an insurance company hold versus a household investor? And this is where the insurance company also then has the potential to have a a more broadly diversified, longer maturity, more credit risk type of bond portfolio. So they can produce a bond portfolio that can have a higher yield than a household investor can really feel comfortable creating on their own. And then also doesn't have to worry about paying the retail costs of purchasing bonds and so forth. So a higher yielding bond portfolio with tax advantages. And then the other important aspect, and and this we haven't yet talked about the other way, (laughs) the life insurance can fit into the retirement income plan. But with the, the cash value of life insurance, it's not exposed to the same sort of interest rate risk that traditional bonds face, which is if interest rates go up, bonds will have a capital loss and you can actually lose money on bonds. In recent years, we're not used to that because interest rates have continued to go down and down. And then that's given you a boost on bond returns in in the recent past. But at some point, if that trend reverses, it works in the opposite direction. Bonds will have losses as interest rates go up. And the cash value of life insurance is also protected. It's more like a stable value type fund. You can't have 
a capital loss within the cash value of the life insurance. And that's because the insurance company understands what its expenses are because of the risk pooling. It doesn't know which particular customer will get a payout, but it knows approximately here's the amount of money they have to spend every year to fulfill all their obligations, whether it's annuity payments or whether it's life insurance, death benefits. They have a pretty good sense of that. And so they're able to hold bonds to maturity, longer term bonds, as I mentioned, to get higher yield and and have that sort of portfolio so that the cash value of any particular policyholder isn't exposed to losses when interest rates go up. Yeah, and holding those to maturity, I think, is the key for people to understand. So as interest rates go up, you know, if, a, if, a, if an individual is trying to take advantage of that, they would potentially have to sell the long uh, maturity bond at a discount and a loss to get the, the higher interest rate of the new bond. However, life insurance companies have premiums coming in every month, so they have new capital to purchase newer bonds. Is that fair to say, doctor? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So a household investor who already owns bonds can't benefit from increasing interest rates because, right, when they sell their bond to buy the new bond, the, the loss offsets the benefit of the higher interest right, of the, rate of the new bond. That's but, yeah. that's how the discount is is what's based upon. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a conceptual way for people to understand. And and I think the next thing I, where I think you were going is a sequence of return risk and how the cash value can be used for sequence of return mm-hmm. risk. So could you go through that conceptually for us? Sure, sure. And that's really getting into this retirement is really different from pre-retirement investment management. And that's where a lot of folks who just believe in investments only for retirement income. Well, retirees, they face this longevity risk that we've been talking about thus far with like the idea of an annuity. And what if you live a very long time? That It makes retirement more expensive and people might outlive their investment assets. But the other aspect of this is when people stop saving new funds and start taking distributions, that amplifies the importance of the returns you get with your portfolio in the early retirement years. And it's called sequence of returns risk. It's even if my retirement lasts 30 years, it doesn't matter if I have a high average market return over those 30 years. If I get poor returns early on, good returns later on, the average might look great, but I've already dug a hole for my portfolio. And so my effective return throughout retirement could be much lower than the average. And and so sequence risk, it amplifies investment risk. And, And that's where this is the other way life insurance can be incorporated into retirement income. It's, I call it a buffer asset. It also goes by the name of a volatility buffer. Mm-hmm. It's this resource that's outside the portfolio and then it's not correlated with the portfolio. And that's where this whole idea of the, the cash value can't have losses. So it's a resource that's stable and available. And so then rather than having to sell from the portfolio at a loss during bad market times, you temporarily take distributions from your buffer asset. To, to build a bridge and a, to make, be able to hold over and not have to sell portfolio assets at a loss. And then, you know, if you basically have this investment mindset, you're hopeful that markets will recover and you can resume then taking distributions from the portfolio again. But by being able to use that, the, the cash value of the life insurance as a buffer asset, the synergies that creates to help manage the sequence risk and to not have to sell from your portfolio at a loss 
is really powerful. And so there, it's kind of the trade-off. Well, if I borrow from my cash value, it creates a loan that will accumulate with interest. Is the cost of that loan greater than the benefit that I get from helping to protect my portfolio? And that's where I find that generally the answer is no, that the, the synergy of protecting the portfolio more than offsets any sort of cost of the life insurance. So that at the end, well, how much spending could I fund in retirement? And then how much money do I have le left at the end of retirement? And so my legacy then becomes what's left in my investment portfolio plus the value of the life insurance death benefit less the loan balance due because I've been borrowing from my cash value to fund these bridge retirement expenses to protect the portfolio. And, and so in the simulations, what I'm finding is the gains to the portfolio through that protection are much larger than the loan balance or the, the cost yeah. created so that you pay off the loan balance and you still have more net legacy. You have a windfall created because your investments were, were benefited much more than they needed to be to offset the cost of the, the policy loans on the life insurance. So you have yeah, that, that idea because you're in a position now where your investment, if you think about it, your investment is here and the life insurance, the whole life insurance asset is here. You're in a position where this can fluctuate. Hopefully it grows, you're saying. And then at the same time, if we have a shrinking, then we want to be able to pull from this stationary stable asset mm -hmm. of the life insurance so that we can allow this asset to not suffer from us having to take out a higher percentage in order to make up that income need that we had or have the value of the of the investment asset depleted so that you would have to have a higher return for it to just recover and continue to grow so you're in a position then with more options and more access to the income that you need during retirement Mm -hmm. yeah, so, Doctor, so let's talk a little bit because I, I noticed this on commercials with what I would call typical um, security planning firms uh, across the United States. And I will they, they will show, you know, the investor coming in to talk to the advisor in this really neat commercial. And they will actually show the advisor screen. And with technology now, I'm able to take my my remote and and pause it. <laughs> and you can see on the screen where it says your uh, the li your like the the possibility or likelihood of re of having money in this situation at age X is eighty four percent, and it seems like people are either comfortable with that or not comfortable with that. So We're glossing over the fact because the likelihood of having money is more likely than not having money, but there's still the risk that you won't have money after that certain age. Correct. So from your research, can you talk about the, you know, the likelihood of having money in, in, these, in these types of situations that you're um, talking about at age 90 or 95 or 100 and not running out of money? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is how, as the investment world has evolved to deal with retirement income, that standard approaches, it's called a Monte Carlo simulation. You develop random sequences of returns for stocks and bonds, and then you test out the, the financial plan. And if you can take the distributions that meet the spending goal, taking distributions with those market returns and have money left at the end, that counts as a success. But if you run out of money before the end, that counts as a failure. And so if the plan then reports an 84% chance for success, 
that means 84% of the time you have money left at the end. But it means also that 16% of the time your plan failed. You, you've run out of money before the end. And the, that's where it's kind of the same sort of logic. People who are worried about outliving their money, they feel like they have to get that success rate higher and higher. And you might even be asking, about like, how do I get it to 100% success rate? And in that mindset, the answer is you have to spend less. Really the, well, there, you could also try to seek higher returns and everything. But at the end of the day, you're really forced to spend less to make sure you're not going to run out of money. And you don't have to pull that same spending lever when you use that more integrated approach that includes uh, actuarial science or insurance, the annuities or the life insurance, because you don't have that market volatility at that point. Your, your assets have, they're supporting more spending than bonds through contractually protected risk pooling rather than supporting spending through the hope that stocks will outperform bonds. So they don't have to have that probability of success attached to it. It's a contractual protection. So I think that's a really good bridge then into in your white paper, which we will have available in the show notes. You talk about three ways to look at life insurance in terms of how it improves your overall financial performance when it's seen as an integrated part of your entire financial system. And one of the ways that you talk about is how it improves your ability to not only have income during retirement, but also to leave a legacy. And the way I think about this is almost a two sides of balancing on a teeter-totter, where if you are looking at your investment portfolio to handle both, you can either spend the money and enjoy your money while you're living or leave a legacy, but the likelihood of you being able to do both exceptionally well is very small. So can you talk about how does life insurance, whole life insurance specifically, allow you to not only improve your spending and the amount of money that you enjoy during retirement, but also improve your legacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the issue there is like we we're saying with this example about an 84% success rate, you always with investments, you never have certainty. So you've always got to have some success rate attached. <laughs> and, and so what I do in the paper is I am calibrating to a 90% success rate. And I, I say, well, with buy term and invest the difference, if I want to have a legacy, it means I'm going to say, well, I want a 90% chance that I have whatever the legacy is. We could just say a million dollars for a rough number, but then I would need a 90% chance that I have at least a million dollars left at the end of retirement. And that's a tough obligation. It means I then have to then spend less so that I can ensure that there's a 90% chance that I have at least a million dollars left. And then that can be contrasted. Well, what if I use permanent life insurance and then the premiums to the life insurance fund the legacy so that now I have the death, if the death benefit is a million dollars, I mean, there you go. That's going to cover the legacy. And then now with my remaining investments, I don't have to be so careful. I no longer need a 90% chance that I have at least a million dollars of investment assets left. I can move towards the 90% the chance of depleting my investments, which is how all the standard investment-based approaches work. Like that 4% rule of thumb assumes you're willing to spend your portfolio down to zero after 30 years of retirement. So if you're not willing to be that aggressive, then you would have to look at an even lower spending rate. And, and that's where what I find is by earmarking assets to the life insurance premiums to fund the legacy, that lets you 
I wouldn't necessarily be more aggressive with your investments, but at least not have to be as careful with your investments. And so then that lays the foundation to actually be able to spend more in retirement while also ensuring that you can meet that legacy goal. And, and so that's that first way to think about life insurance is that it's just a more efficient way to meet a legacy goal than the alternative, which is to spend even less from my investments to make sure I can, can meet that legacy goal. I really that's, like how you, sorry, Bruce. No, that's, good. Oh, that's okay. I, I was going to go on the next topic. Go ahead. I was going to say, I really like how you share the difference between buying term and investing the difference, which is conceptually, and you say this even in your paper, if you are buying term and investing the difference, the real thought is there, investments are going to do all the work for me because my need for life insurance drops off when I no longer have a income. So I'm in retirement now, I'm not producing an income. Well, it's no longer a protection against the loss of that income, so I don't need life insurance. So I went with the lowest cost product possible. My need is gone after age 65, or this is the typical thinking, which we do not agree with. But if you think of it that way, then buying term, investing as much as possible into your investment portfolio, that is one and the same. Buy term, invest the difference is the same thing as investment only, minimal need for, for life insurance. Whereas the whole life insurance, you were saying earlier, if we're going to fund a death benefit that lasts my whole life and will make sure that it pays out as a legacy no matter when I die, that does involve additional significant premiums going into that product, which means less available for investing. But when we look at the big picture and your simulations point this out very beautifully, it shows that not only can I have more money to live on during my life, but I also have that guarantee of the legacy being paid out by the life insurance. So you're not asking the investment to do both jobs. You're now only right. asking the investments to grow. They're not also needing to hedge against risk and make sure that you're providing that legacy. So you share as well, and this is part of this point, um, before we move on to another way we can look at life insurance, you talk about then if we take the bond the asset allocation between stocks and bonds inside the investment portfolio, and you take the function of what the bonds were supposed to be doing of providing that um, diversification and also the safety, if you take that out of the investment portfolio and put that into annuities and life insurance, then you talk about how you can actually have more of an asset allocation towards stocks if you want to invest that way, which means that you might have higher growth rates as long as the market doesn't fall inside of the investment. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, yeah. And so at a, at a very basic level, the, um, the kind of we think about with investments, what's the efficient frontier, like what's the appropriate asset allocation? And it's some sort of stock bond mix. But strictly speaking for retirement income, it's not stocks and bonds anymore. It's stocks and actuarial bonds or stocks and annuities and life insurance. That traditional bonds don't really help with funding any sort of you might want some bonds for an emergency fund and so forth, but in terms of meeting a lifetime spending goal and funding legacy, bonds don't really have a role to play. You're going to get a better outcome by mixing stocks with, with annuities and life insurance. And that's an important part of this. The idea is not that you give up on stocks. It's just that you're repositioning some of what you would have had in bonds into the, the life insurance or the annuity. And then at, at the end of the day, if you're thinking about those assets as part of your bond holdings, you could have the same overall asset allocation, so to speak. You have the same number of dollars in stocks 
And, and you could even take it further if you wanted, which is to say, now if I have contractual protections with my bonds to support these lifetime goals, I have more risk capacity, which means my lifestyle is not as vulnerable to downturns in the financial markets. And so that means I have the capacity, if I want, I could invest even more aggressively. So I, I could go even higher into stocks. Now in the, the, the white paper that we're talking about, I don't take it that further step to make you even more aggressive with stocks. But I do at least say, well, anything that you put into well, the, the cash value of your life insurance policy, I treat as part of your bond allocation. And then if you buy an annuity, I treat that as part of your bond allocation as well. And so I try to keep the stock allocation the same as a percent of your overall assets, not just as a percent of the, the, what's left in the investment portfolio. And again, just a, a very excellent element of really thinking through all of the factors and all of the facets of a comparison so that we can really understand which is the best way to move forward. Bruce, did you want to take us into the next way of thinking about like well, doc, Yeah, Dr. Wade, um, there's, there's a real push out in not only the industry, but with consumers to say, oh, I can do this with a, with the index universal life policy, or I, I can do that. I have a variable universal life policy. And as long as I fully fund it, both of these things, I shouldn't have anything to, to worry about. So why does your white paper talk about whole life specifically and not these forms of universal life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do get this question from time to time. And, and so the, the first part of the answer is just this reminder, I'm, I'm not from the insurance world. <laughs> and so I'm learning about life insurance as I go along. And I, I just became more comfortable with whole life insurance because of the, the guarantees about premiums and so forth that with the other universal life insurance style policies, whether they're variable or indexed, premiums can go up. And if the policy underperforms the illustration, people can get into trouble in a way that doesn't really happen with whole life insurance. And so I do kind of have this, this mindset, well, stocks and bonds becoming stocks and actuarial bonds or stocks and annuities and, and life insurance. So I don't want to be taking risk as much risk, so to speak, inside of the, the bond side of that. And that's why I re really became most comfortable with whole life insurance. That being said, there could be value in other types of life insurance policies, but that's just not the starting point that I, I think about approaching that. And I just need to, there needs to be a reminder with other types of life insurance that if the policies are underperforming, you might have to add in additional premiums. And so then that can mess up the retirement plan <laughs> that you have in place in that regard. Absolutely. Hey, I wanted to let you know, we've got a few questions. Um, actually, one, one question I want to address here. So this will lead us into the next way of thinking about life insurance as increasing my income during retirement. So the question is, how much percentage wise should we aim annuities, aim for annuities to cover future retirement income? Now, I'll let you kind of bridge into this question and answer the question as well as my question that I'll, mel I'll meld with it. So we think about if, if you're using annuities and life insurance, you have the ability to have the annuity provide fixed income. You also have an ability to have a single only or a joint annuity and the role of life insurance, specifically whole life insurance, allowing you to take a single annuity with lesser income and have the whole life insurance be able to 
cover the premium that has paid into that. So can you talk about annuities and the role of annuities and then the whole life insurance in your integrated strategy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this this is a, a question I get a lot. And I think it, it comes from this idea of thinking about asset allocation where we're used to saying, well, maybe I should have 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And so then extending that into say, well, what percent should be in the annuity? And you could think about it that way, but that's not usually the way I would want to approach it. The way I approach it is, I talk about the the four L's of retirement are your financial goals, longevity, lifestyle, legacy, and liquidity. And so your retirement budget, it's longevity and lifestyle. How much do you want to spend every year? How much of that are these core expenses that you don't want to take market risk with? And then how much of that is more discretionary that you may be willing to invest more aggressively for? So when it comes to your core longevity expenses, first start off with what you have. Social security is an annuity. <laughs> that People should understand that. If they have traditional company defined benefit pensions that pay a monthly income for life, that's also an annuity. Mm-hmm. So add up that reliable income they have and then look if there's a gap. So if, for example, if I have $50,000 already through social security and pensions, and I really want to be comfortably spending $60,000, then there's a $10,000 gap. And then I would look at, well, how much would it take in an annuity to fill that gap? And with a single life annuity, it would take less than with a joint life annuity. But just how, what percent of my assets would it take to fill that gap? And if that's still a reasonable part of the allocation that you're comfortable with, and you still have assets outside of the annuity, you're not putting everything into the annuity, you have some liquid resources elsewhere, then, then I say that's okay. And that's how you would approach the decision about how much to put into the annuity. And the life insurance, you know, backing that up, that, that can support the annuity payment. So that, because life insurance, you have to build into in advance. You're, you're mm-hmm. making these decisions pre-retirement. And in that regard, depending on the potential use you have in mind, whether it's If it's for this covered asset strategy where you're thinking about the life insurance to back up annuity purchases, well, then you can start looking at annuity pricing and thinking ahead about when you might buy the annuity, how much you might be wanting to put into the annuity, and then having an equivalent amount of of life insurance to back up that purchase in the future as a basic way to start thinking about it. And I guess just kind of on a simplified or more um, conceptual level, I think about as well, if you have, say, your investment portfolio and you want to purchase an annuity, you're going to pay more for a joint life annuity versus a single life. So say, for instance, in my mine and my husband's life, we want to purchase an annuity that pays, I, I use a lump sum of money to tie up, it's no longer liquid, and now I'm going to get an in- income stream, a defined benefit income stream from that. And if it's single life, it's going to have less money going into it, but it's going to pay out, say, until he dies. If we did a joint life, I'm going to put more premium into it in the first place, but it may pay out while he's living. And also after he's no longer living, it would continue to pay out while I'm still living. So Mm -hmm. when you think about the need for income, if you can have a single life pension or single life annuity that has less premium going in, then at the, that person's 
loss of life, their death benefit from their life insurance policy that you also had simultaneously would pay out and then allow you to either purchase an additional annuity or an additional pension or have another pension, but have another income stream from the life insurance. So you're spreading the jobs into three separate assets instead of Mm -hmm. having the annuity do both. Yeah. Yeah. That when you have that joint life annuity, it's projected to pay out for longer because with two people, there's more chance that somebody lives longer than just with one person alone. And I think in the white paper, I I was using real annuity pricing. And I think the single life annuity had a 17% higher payout rate, which would also compare to joint life, which would also suggest in the other direction to support the same level of spending you could put in the neighborhood of 17% less funds into the single life annuity. And that's a, like a joint life annuity is also a way to get life insurance effectively. But with the covered asset approach, you use life insurance to get the life insurance. And then that lets you buy the single life annuity because as you mentioned, if that individual passes away, the death benefit replaces that asset to the survivor. And they can then carve out a piece of that to buy a single life annuity, however they want to approach things at that point. I'd like so, to I'd like to point out to, to because I use uh, I use your approach as much as possible, um, and you did talk about kind of like the fixed cost, but you also have to listen to your clients because some clients say, "Well, that's great, but I'd like some of my discretionary income also to make sure it's guaranteed to be mm-hmm. covered." So we, we try to determine what their comfort level is. And some people, to choose, they actually choose to have even more of their discretionary um, money covered. So it, it really is an approach that you have to do. It's not all about numbers is what I tell people all the time. It's, it's also about your comfort level. Right, right. It's, and at the end of the day, it's really just you know, what, what sort of expenses would you like to have the comfort of not having to worry that if the stock market goes down? you might have to make cuts to those expenses. That becomes your longevity expenses that you want to approach with reliable income resources. Well, I think this is a really valuable discussion for anybody. I mean, we normally are talking with and probably attracting more people who are interested in building income streams through income producing assets like real estate portfolios and business. But at the same time, if you think about having an investment portfolio that's going to produce income, you want to think holistically, no matter which approach you have and which philosophy you have financially, the ultimate goal is to have as much income as possible. And how do you plan for that within what investments you know and control the best? So I think this discussion for sure has enlightened all of us to the the beauty and the value of having whole life insurance combined with any investment strategy. So in your words then, Dr. Wade, why would you say whole life insurance should be integrated in everyone's financial planning and their their thinking? Maybe it's not necessarily that they need to have it, but why should they be considering adding this to their investment strategy? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the same. I I became so convinced by the research (laughs) Then I ended up getting whole life insurance, even though I'm, you know, from, again, from the investments world where the, the thing pounded into your head is buy term and invest the difference. And I, it's because you know, just thinking ahead to the role it can play in retirement. 
you, you don't have to decide right away, but I, I am thinking to use annuities. So I'm, I'm thinking of, well, okay, that now I can think about a single life annuity instead of joint life with my wife. And, and so get a higher uh, amount of spending from a given premium or to pay less premium for that annuity. And also this whole buffer asset concept, I find really compelling that it just the, it's sequence of returns risk works in such fascinating ways that how small differences can have such a huge impact on the final outcome. And so having that ability to just skip a distribution from your portfolio when your portfolio is down has a huge impact on, on how much wealth you'll have at the end. And so I find that really compelling as well. And so just having a, at least a few years of potential spending power in that cash value of the life insurance. I found that really compelling as well. And that's how I think about it. And that's how I, I really became convinced myself that I should have whole life insurance as part of my retirement plan. And I think uh, what you're really talking about the entire show is an integrated approach to all these vehicles, because I've had people say, well, I have, several hundred thousand dollars in a CD or a money market mm -hmm. account. That's my buffer uh, asset, right. which is, which is true, which is absolutely true, mm -hmm. except it doesn't do the other things for you mm -hmm. that the whole life insurance can do by refilling up the bucket, you know, once uh, that person dies. And, right. I, and my last closing comment to you is, is um, uh, I'm sure down in Dallas where you work, you work with a lot of high net, uh, worth individuals who have to worry about estate taxes. And so one of the most efficient ways to take care of the estate tax so that you don't liquidate either businesses or you don't liquidate um, the assets that were going to be passed on is to have a, a well-designed life insurance pro uh, policy to pay the, pay the estate taxes. Could you comment mm -hmm. a little bit on that, doctor? Yeah, well, mostly actually I do work with people who aren't necessarily going to be <laughs> at the level where the estate tax kicks in, but I have seen a few cases of it. And right, having the life insurance for somebody who's pretty sure they're going to have to be paying estate taxes, that's a huge sequence of returns risk type of event that if I'm going to pass on investment assets and if the markets are down at that time and that beneficiary or the, the person receiving the inheritance is forced to sell a big chunk of the investment assets, to pay the estate tax bill, that can lead to this sort of same issue with sequence risk that now they've cut out a big shot of that portfolio, a big piece of that portfolio. And having life insurance earmarking a death benefit that can be used to pay the estate tax bill is also another way to think about managing that sort of sequence of returns risk and knowing more ahead of time what that final situation is going to look at look like how much legacy will be available after taxes yeah so, i just wanted to bring in the fact that uh, it's about the integrated re uh, approach with everything and doctor i understand that now with the exclusion uh being bumped up so right. high maybe back down <laughs> but it, but but 12 years ago i believe it was only one one million dollars per, per person so um uh and you know that depends on the political climate it depends on um our debt situation you know that that could go right back down there at any time mm -hmm. and and that's an unsure thing that i think um you know successful people need to worry about absolutely, absolutely. now i have um, a couple of additional thoughts i hope we can squeeze in right before the top of the hour here so we have one um 
question, if you start building a whole life policy early in your life and consistently are using IBC principles, would using the policies to buy annuities in the future be necessary? Great question. Um, Bruce, do you want to comment on that or do you, or Dr. Wade, would you like to take that one? I'll let Bruce handle. I'm not sure well, what's meant by IBC principles. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, the infinite banking concept, which is a, is oh, a, um, it's basically a, a place to store capital, um, which we could talk about sometime uh, for this, but it's about u- utilizing the policy before retirement um, and the advantages of that. But I would say in that situation, um, no, I still think the annuity is very, very important be, uh, for the actuarial bond situation. Uh, even though the, the life insurance is still there for that, the life insurance needs to be earmarked, in my opinion, to do two things. And that is to fill up the bucket again for so that you can um, uh, have that spend more and also so that the sequence of return risk, so that the capital is there for the sequence of return risk. What I think the caller is asking or the texter is asking is, well, we can just pull retirement income, which is uh, off of the um, whole life insurance, just like we would do with the um, with the annuity. With an annuity, yes. And there, there would there could be some truth to that, and you may want to use an integrated approach where you do some of the annuity and some of the um, examples, some of the dividends off of that, and you may not have to put as much in. But you would have to start, like the uh, texter said, uh, at a younger age to build to build up that cash value, you know, in retirement. Yes, and I could also see a value in, say, for instance, there's whole life insurance on one spouse, and the other spouse had a need for income, and the one with the whole life insurance passed away. The death benefit could be used to purchase additional policies and also an annuity for the surviving spouse. There's many different ways that you could handle that, but. I think it would be on a case-by-case basis depending on the full financial situation. And then one additional question, or actually it was more of a comment, but it said the logic and data flies in the face of the fire kids that are using or that are 100% in stocks. Um, so I, I just would comment on that. I think that you can have tremendous amount of success, short-term, very quick success with anything. It could be a business, it could be stocks, it could be something that turns around and in two days you make $100,000. That does not mean you have a financial system in place. And I would caution anyone to, maybe not caution, I would um, implore anyone to think long-term and to think systematically in your financial life, no matter how you're making your money, you really want to be thinking, what does that look like 40, 50 years from now in terms of my income and my legacy that I'm leaving? Because no amount of, you could even have $20 million today. If you're not thinking long-term, you still may not have the income and the legacy that you want at the end of your life and in, in, into the future. So I think, I, I think that comes down once again, to sequence of return risk. And that's what people don't, I don't think have a good understanding of. They really mm-hmm. don't. And so a person says, well, I'm just going to, you know, put all my monies in, in the stock and, and historically that has worked. Well, it only historically has worked when you don't pull income off of it, that it's going to continue to grow. When you start pulling income off of it, and you don't allow it to have a, some way to uh, actually uh, come back without the drag of that income, because that drag of that income is really difficult for that asset to come back. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I would encourage that listener to look at sequence of return risk because I think, and Dr. I would say that was, that's one of the key components of your research. Yeah. And, and I would say also with the, the fire community, cause I'm, I, I like that community, <laughs> not necessarily, I'm part, not part of it, but I'm sympathetic to it. That's the word I'm looking for. But yeah, there's different ways to manage sequence risk. And if, I know a lot of members of the FIRE community are very bullish on the idea of an aggressive asset allocation and even using the 4% rule, even though that was really only meant to last for 30 years, which is going to be a lot shorter than young retirees are, are going to be looking for. But they've got to manage sequence risk in some way. And so the avenue they should use if they're really unwilling to consider some of these other alternatives is flexible spending to be willing to cut their expenses when the markets are down. That can also help manage sequence of returns risk. Mm-hmm. And if you're gonna go 100% stocks as an early retiree, you really have to look at being flexible with your spending and being able to cut spending as necessary throughout retirement or else having the capacity to have a part-time job to reduce the distribution need from the investment portfolio. Yeah, if you wanna well. take, take the risk, take the risk. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. But we're talking about people who do not want to have those kind of risks. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Wade Fow, today. Uh, This has just been a very enlightening, fascinating conversation. It's been really exciting to see the engagement online as well as we've been live here. So thank you all to you who are listening live. And thank you to our listeners who will be catching this as it goes up on the podcast in about six weeks as well. Now, if you are interested in finding more out about whole life insurance and privatized banking, which is also part of the infinite banking strategy, we have free resources and tools, many episodes of the podcast, but specifically, you can go to privatizedbankingsecrets.com. You can get a download of exactly how to use whole life insurance to increase your investment returns and to maximize your control and options. This is also a way to have more safety, more guarantees, and more liquidity in your financial life. Now, if you are ready for a conversation right now to look at your personal financial system and say, how do I work everything together as best as possible? How do I coordinate all of these pieces to get the most income, the most control, the most most cash flow, the most flexibility, so I can have the most confidence in my financial life, we would love to talk to you and you can book an appointment at themoneyadvantage.com slash calendar. So in closing, I do need to ask, and I forgot to do this, Dr. Wade, how do people connect with you and make sure that they can find you specifically with Retirement Researcher and anything else you would like to provide as we wrap the episode? Yeah. So my my website on the internet is retirementresearcher.com. It's all one word, retirementresearcher.com. And I have written three books. They're all on Amazon. The, the book that also talks about life insurance is called Safety First Retirement Planning. So if you'd like to check for that on Amazon, chapter seven goes into a much greater depth about what we were talking about today with life insurance as part of a retirement income plan. Excellent. And we will also, in the show notes for this episode, we will have a link out to your white paper, which is called... Integrating whole life insurance into retirement income planning. Perfect. I had to scroll to the top and I wasn't there yet. So thank you, Bruce. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much for being with us today. This has been a fabulous episode. And everyone who's listening, please remember in closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business that you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. 
we've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.